Today we start a new series about the book of Ruth. This is a very modern story, even though it's written back in Old Testament times. It's of a man who moved his family to another country to get work and food. Refugees who met disaster after disaster. A woman left widowed and whose only family, two sons, die. She's empty and desperate and far from home. The first chapter is about Naomi's dilemma. Should, we, should she stay uh, in the land of Moab and continue to eke out a living there? Or should she go back home to Israel and rebuild in God's community? I think the story applies to all of us in different ways. Haven't we all at times left home and things haven't worked out how we planned? Maybe we've literally left our home country. Or maybe we've moved cities and end up here in London. Maybe we've known failure at uni or at work or things just didn't work out as we planned. Or maybe we've stayed at home and on the surface everything looks just fine. But inside, we struggle with disappointment about how things have worked out and anxiety about the future. We live with the consequences of other people's decision. And the reality is we all long for the happy ever after. But the reality is that Jesus said in this world, we will have trouble. And Naomi certainly knew that. So let's read Ruth chapter 1. We're beginning at verse 1. Let's hear about Naomi and her family. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malion and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Charles Dickens opens his famous novel and tale of two cities with the phrase, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Maybe we feel we're in the worst of times at the moment in our nation, or maybe you feel we're in the best of times. But what we're going to see in this book is the whole of human experience, the contrast between the worst and the best of life in idol-worshipping Moab and the life in the community of God, of despair and hope, poverty and provision, broken hearts and romance, loneliness and community, God's apparent absence and God's rich blessings, emptiness and fullness. This story happens in the period of the book of, of Judges, These were actually dark days for Israel, and there's this phrase that comes up in the book of uh, Judges repeatedly, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
The Moabs were enemies of God's people. They worshipped the idol god Shemesh. And in Judges 3, they attacked Israel and they oppressed them for 18 years until an Israelite actually brutally assassinated their king. So there was really enmity between these two peoples. The Moabite stone, written in 830 BC, you can see it in France in the Louvre, documents this conflict, this historic conflict between these two peoples. But in spite of all that, Elimelech and his wife Naomi make the journey to Moab, doing what is right in their own eyes. They leave Bethlehem, which was a rich agricultural nation, an area, and it was going through famine, so obviously things weren't going well there, but they choose to leave. The family hike through the desolate Jericho Pass, through the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea. They would have crossed the River Jordan and ended up in the land of Moab. It's not actually that far away. It's probably like Dover to Calais, but actually it is a million miles away from the promised land. And Elimelech, although his motive is to provide for his family, he's heading in the wrong direction. And his intention of a short visit because of the famine turns into 10 tragedy-filled years. After he dies, his sons marry Moabite women. This was another pragmatic decision. But, you know, at that point, they could have returned to Bethlehem. They could have sent back home for wives within the people of God. This isn't about race. This was about marrying within the community of faith. Remember, these two tribes are enemies. And no Moabite was allowed to come into the assembly of God. So, definitely frowned upon. But after 10 years, the sons also die and their wives are childless. I mean, imagine those years for Naomi waiting, hoping for grandchildren, wondering what's going on. Where was God? What has happened over these years to Naomi's hopes and dreams and faith? To be a widow, particularly with no children, was to be like at the lowest level in the community. You had to really rely on charity. And remember, Naomi is an outsider, so I think she would have been in a very desperate situation in this time. I'm not sure about you, but we love to travel. We love to journey. We love to drive places. And I don't know if this ever happens in your car, but you know, sometimes you're driving along and you hit a big traffic jam or you take a turning. It doesn't quite go where you think it's going to go. But there always seems to be this instinct that you just keep marching forward, you keep driving forward. And you know, you might turn off the road slightly, but you'll always look to be going in the same direction. It's often really hard to come to the place of saying, actually, we're going completely the wrong way. We need to do a U-turn and start all over. You have to have a lot of diplomacy if you're in the passenger seat. You know, ever have that kind of conversation? Think we're on the wrong road? Think we need to turn around? Naomi was in that place where she had to come to the decision to stop going forward in Moab and to do a U-turn and to go back home to Judah. 
I think that was a really difficult choice for her because it meant leaving people that she'd grown to you know, know over 10 years, even though they worshipped different gods and had different customs. It meant taking the risk. How would she be welcomed home? And would that make any difference to her finances, which were so crippled at that time? But finally, she decides she will go home. And we read this in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. It sounds like she had some kind of contact with people back in Bethlehem. She knew that they were out of famine. And what's great is to see that she attributes that to God. She sees God's hand in this. She, she sees that God is at work. So there's, there's a flicker of faith there. So they all start on their journey back to Judah. But the story gets interesting because somewhere along the way, we don't know how far they had journeyed, Naomi stops and tries to persuade her daughters-in-law to go back home. She says to them, go back out each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So again, we see her tapping into her faith and praying a blessing over these two women. But I wonder what was really going on in her mind. Is she worried about them? Is she thinking, well, they'd be much better off back home, in their parents' home. There's more opportunities, more chance for them. Or is she also thinking, I wonder what reception they're going to get in Bethlehem. I wonder if they're going to face prejudice and rejection as foreign women, widows. I wonder if she's thinking no one's going to marry them. And they're going to end up a burden to me. It's going to make life more complicated. And they're going to be like a living witness to everything that failed and went wrong in Moab. She's, she's conflicted about it and she tries to stop them to come with her. She's lost her way so much that she doesn't just say, go back to your own family. She says, go back to your own gods. It's like she doesn't believe that God can help them and bless them. It is hard to go back home though, isn't it? When things have gone wrong. It's hard to go home if your debts have piled up or that relationship didn't work out or you're out of work. It's hard to go home. And I think Naomi is just really worried about the reception she's going to get in Bethlehem. But she goes on to say this, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband? She's, she's like hopeless. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Wow, it's a sober statement, isn't it? She's bitter and she's confused about God's part in her story. The deaths of her husbands and sons. She sees them as evidence of God's punishment in some way. And sometimes we can feel like that, can't we? That, 
Somehow God is against us instead of for us, that somehow it's all our fault and we, we can't lift ourselves out of the mess and the pain that has resulted. Job felt that too. He was another Old Testament character who faced a lot of suffering and challenges. And in Job 6, he says, the Almighty has struck me down. In chapter 27, he says, God has denied me justice. The Almighty has made my life bitter. I could move on at this point and I could say, don't worry. It's going to turn out okay. She's going to live happily ever after. We just skip over this part. But these words are in this story for a reason. The people in the Bible are real people with honest ugly feelings of resentment and bitterness and fear and anger and pain. And the Bible doesn't gloss over that. Maybe right now you you can identify that because you know those feelings. Most of us do at some point feel like that. Where is God? And maybe in those moments, people have sort of said to you, don't worry, God has a plan. Whatever you're going through, God is in charge. God is still sovereign. And maybe you've read verses like Jeremiah 29, which says, for, the, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Or Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. I believe those verses are true. I've, I've proved them in my own life. But you know, I can imagine if I quoted those verses to Naomi in this place along the road, I think she would be saying, no, it's not true for me. How can God prosper me now? I'm, I'm empty. I have nothing. I have no future. The people I love are dead. I have no grandchildren. There's, there's no way this can work out. I'm going home now because I've got no other options. It's, it's not God's plan. It's my plan. I don't even deserve to be in the people of God. I don't know his grace anymore. I'm not sure about his promises He's turned against me. His hand isn't there to save me. Can you feel her pain and her despair and her confusion in this place? Can you identify with that? But you know, the mystery is that God actually is with her in this place. And he's working in her life behind the scenes, but she just can't see it yet. God isn't absent or passive. He's always working. But this does raise questions for us. I mean, does God cause the bad things in our life? Does he just allow them? Are they random, beyond his control? Well, I believe that if God is God, there's nothing beyond his control. There's nothing outside his influence. But you know, there's no book that you can turn to in the Bible that gives you 10 easy answers to suffering and evil. It's just not there. Instead, God speaks to us through stories like Ruth and Job, 
they touch on suffering and there's principles that come out of it, but there aren't clear, easy answers. There are some thoughts I have. Firstly, we do have to face the consequences of our own and other people's decisions and actions. Although even then, sometimes God steps in and protects us from what we truly deserve. We do have to face the consequences of the fall when mankind rebelled against God and unleashed sin and death and suffering like a fracture running through the whole of the earth. We do have an enemy, the devil, who has some power on this earth to harm us, although even that is subject to God's authority. God's timing and actions in our life are based on his bigger picture and plan, but we won't always see it and we won't always get it. Some things will only be resolved in eternity where every tear will be wiped away and every injustice will be righted. But what the Bible does say clearly time and time again is that God is not just in charge and all-powerful, but he loves us. His loving kindness, his grace is promised to us, his people, if we trust in him. In the best times And the worst times, God is still working out his plans to give his people a hope and a future. And that's true for us today. It's true for us every day. The cross where Jesus died is a massive demonstration of God's resolve to rescue and save us and mend the fracture of sin that not only affects the world, but runs through our hearts. Jesus came to earth. He moved to earth. He he migrated to earth to bind up the brokenhearted. He became an outsider. He took on himself the consequences of our sin. He stood in our place. He took the punishment we deserved. He died on the cross to make good God's promises to those who put their trust in him. You know, when Jesus walked to the cross... It seemed like there was no hope, that God had no plan, that the options had run out, that God's hand was turned against him. But in those agonizing moments, our hope and future was secured. The resurrection guarantees it. Our, sacrifice, our salvation came at the price of his suffering. So in our suffering we can know God is at work. He has a plan. But Naomi doesn't know any of this. Her head is down. She's in bitterness and emptiness. And she pushes her daughters-in-law away. And Orpha goes back home. But Ruth decides to stay. And it's like she steps up onto center stage. And she says, to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth, the foreigner, brought up 
to worship idols, she expresses the covenant grace of God to Naomi. She says she's going to stick with Naomi. She's, she's in the line of Abraham. She's saying, I'm going to leave my father's house. I'm going to leave my homeland. I'm going to go to the place where God is taking me. I'm going to be a blessing. And this is so crucial in the story of Ruth. Because, you know, being part of God's people is not about race or nationality, religious observance, where you were born, who your parents are. It's about faith in the God of the nations. It's about saying, your God is going to be my God. That's how we come into the family of God, through faith. Karen Gonzalez, a South American immigrant in the U.S., says this about Ruth. Ruth was an immigrant, an immigrant like me. She was from the despised Moabite community. As a person from the ancient Near East, she would probably have had brown skin and dark eyes and black hair. She was in the lineage of Jesus, one of the four people listed in the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, women. If she was included, so can I be, and so can all of us be. But Naomi doesn't see that yet. She's just carrying on, trudging along on her journey. She doesn't even acknowledge Ruth. She's silent to this wonderful declaration of grace and commitment. And they just journey on to Bethlehem. It's hard to come home. It's hard to come home. We've lived abroad a few times in our life. My husband was brought up in Argentina. We lived as young adults in Italy, and then we've also lived in the U.S. And, you know, I remember coming back from Italy. When we were in Italy, we were, we were bikers. We rode around on a motorbike, and probably most of you can't imagine that. It is a long time ago. But, you know, within a few weeks of coming home, to rainy London, we had traded that bike in for a Ford Fiesta. It's hard to come home. You know, it's hard to come home because things have changed and you've moved on, but the people you come home to have moved on too. And you can feel that dislocation even in your home town, your home city. The transition can be so hard. And remember for Naomi, she's having to admit that everything went wrong in Moab. And sometimes for us, it's hard to admit that things have gone wrong, isn't it? That maybe that business idea didn't work out. That relationship failed. That the move we made to London has turned out to be tougher than we imagined. That we're lonelier than we thought we would be. That our bad habits have followed us, even we've come to somewhere new. It's hard. And I think for Naomi, as she comes into Bethlehem, it must have been very hard. I think the curtains were twitching and everybody was looking. And I think people would have come out and said, oh, where's your husband? And where are your sons? And why haven't you got grandchildren? And what happened in Moab? I told you so. I told you it wouldn't work out well there. And Naomi, she doesn't even acknowledge Ruth. Ruth is just known as the Moabitess, the foreign woman. And she doesn't also acknowledge who she is. She's like, I'm not Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Everything has gone wrong. Her whole identity has been changed by these years of suffering and bereavement. It's going to take time for her to heal. 
And you know, church, when people come into us, when they come home to us, sometimes they need time. Let's be kind to them. Let's be the kind of people that welcome people home. Let's not label them. Let's not say, I told you so. Let's not boast of all we have and only see their emptiness. Let's be patient. Let's not give them cliches and easy answers. Let's sit with them in their pain. Let's not judge. Let's offer grace to people when they come home. And today, if you identify with Naomi, if you're in that place where you feel bitter and low and your head is down, why don't you come home? Why don't you come along to the pastoral care clinic where there'll be good people who will welcome you and listen to your story and pray with you and help you heal? But you know, there are signs of grace, even in the homecoming. In verse 22, it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's two wonderful signs of grace that Ruth is sticking with her, that Ruth is coming with her, that Ruth is entering into a life of faith, that Ruth is going to be a blessing to Naomi. And the second thing is that they arrive back at the perfect time. God has been working behind the scenes. And they come back to harvest time. They come back to bread. They come back to hope. Do read this book. It's only short. You'll struggle to find it in the Old Testament. It's tiny, but it's full of hope and grace. Read it this week. And you will see over the next weeks, and this is a spoiler alert, so cover your ears if you don't want to hear that Ruth will end up coming into the line of David, the line of Jesus. This is the big story, a foreigner, an outsider, a widow, without economic power or influence, enters into the royal line by faith and God's grace, as we all do, actually, when we put our trust in Jesus. God did have a plan. God always has a plan. God is good and faithful towards us, even in the worst of times. What about signs of grace amongst us? Well, you know, I think God always puts people alongside us for the journey. We believe that as a church. We need one another. We need other people on the journey. Who is your Ruth? Who is walking alongside you and helping you grow and heal? Who can you be Ruth to? Who can you walk alongside? Who can you extend grace to you, grace to? Maybe you can do that one-to-one. Maybe you can do that by being a smiling face on a welcome team or serving in the children's work. But let's welcome people home. Let's be the kind of church where everybody is welcome. That's why we talk about community and groups and grace, because this is crucial, that everybody knows that they are welcome and that God is ready to welcome us home today. There's spiritual life amongst us if we work together. There's food here in the kingdom And God is already working behind the scenes in every one of our lives. He is in control. Whatever happens in politics, 
whatever happens in your life. God is not far from you, even if you feel far from him. Whatever is going on, whether you feel unconnected or connected, whatever your history, whether you think you're an outsider or you look like you're an insider, come home. Come home to Jesus. You know, Jesus told a story about a young man far from home who had lost everything. He came to his senses. He did a U-turn. He started his journey home. But his head was down like Naomi. He wasn't expecting a good welcome, but he had no other options. His father, like our heavenly father, ran out to meet him, embraced him, and welcomed him back into the heart of the family. And that's what God wants to do today. Come home. Come home to God. Come home to God's people. Receive his grace. Today might be the day for you to admit you need to do a U-turn and come home and receive the grace of God. Amen.